So I'd like to uh, welcome you all again and welcome back to our podcast offerings. This is uh, Deacon Bernino Hadera uh, with our USCCB Secretary to Child and Youth Protection podcast series. And uh, with, uh, with me, uh, I have uh, Lauren Sommer, uh, also from the Secretary of Child and Youth Protection, USCCB. And I have uh, John Shevlin coming to us uh, from the left coast up in the Pacific Northwest. And just as a quick brief introduction for Dr. Shevlin, um, John is a, a professor of religious studies and the current plenary chair of the Catholic Theology of Gonzaga University in Spokane, Washington, where he teaches courses in uh, Christian theology and a religious dialogue and religion and violence. He holds a doctorate in system, systematic and comparative theology from Boston College, a master's degree in Christian theology from Yale Divinity Universe, uh, School and a bachelor's degree in history and theology from the University of Portland. His current research, area of research and writings includes theological reflections upon traumatics, traumatic wounding and upon religious violence. And at Gonzaga, he organizes the annual lecture series um, called Being Religious Interreligious Interreligiously, which advances the Jesuit commitment to interreligious dialogue. Um, he is a member of the National Review Board uh, with the USCCB 2019, and the National Review Board is a lay consult consultative body to the USCCB's Committee on the Protection of Children and Young People. I welcome you, John, and thank you for coming on. Thanks. Uh, thanks so much, Bernie, for having me. Really quickly, is it Gonzaga or Gonzaga? Gonzaga. Gonzaga. Yes. Okay. Gonzaga. <laughs> so again, um, John, you are on the... Uh, on the National Review Board, and Laura and I would like to be able to just have a conversation with you, specifically on the role that you have as a theologian, and um, the implications. You know, the the crisis, the the well, twenty years now, it's beyond mm -hmm. the crisis at this point. The the effects of child abuse, child sexual abuse, with the church, in particular. You know, what are the consequences? What are the implications theologically, from your perspective, that you could add? Mm -hmm. Well, thanks so much, Bernie, and to uh, Lauren as well. I, you know, when the opportunity to serve on the National Review Board um, presented itself to me, I had a kind of uh, sobering moment of, okay, here is really uh, a chance to demonstrate how, how, if, but hopefully how, theology can actually contribute to the church's response and to um, build up the church's response. And um, it's a it's a great privilege to be on uh, this national review board for the time that that I'm on it, and um, I'm looking forward to to our work together. Um, I mean, there's there's a lot that I think of, um, not all of which is fine tuned, but there's a lot that I think of in terms of the theological implications of of the abuse crisis or the the abuse that has for decades and centuries uh, impacted our church. Um, first and foremost, I'm um, haunted in a good way, uh, haunted by the words of Patrick Howell, uh, a Jesuit who sadly passed away about a year ago uh, in 2019. Um, Father Howell, Father Pat, um, every time I met with him and spoke with him about um, our university's engagement around the abuse issue, he reminded us constantly to keep uh, victims themselves in the forefront of our thoughts and the forefront of our agency so that really whatever kind of work we're doing, um, it's, it's, it's really passing through that, um, that prism of, of will it impact them? Will it be uh, redemptive? Will it be healing for them? And so uh, that, that is for me a, a kind of standard that is hard to meet at times because I think, as you know, Bernie, um, as your secretariat knows, the the opportunities for uh, a lot of other chatter, I think, to enter into the conversation. Uh, there are many opportunities for that to happen. There's a lot of ways to get sidetracked. There's a lot of ways to begin playing defense. And so I think one, um, one vocation, uh, if I could put it that way, a kind of deep calling within the church now um, is to uh, to understand, to 
interact with the experience of uh, victim survivors. Um, and that's not necessarily trying to fix, right? Um, we're not trying to, to fix problems that, um, that, that in some sense, that notion of fixing them is, is just not appropriate here. But I think when we learn about traumatic wounding, when we learn about what trauma is, the call becomes to create a holding environment uh, of care uh, for, for persons um, affected by traumatic wounding. Um, I, I, I take those words, holding environment, from a wonderful pastoral theologian named Deborah Van Doysen Hunsinger, um, who taught for many years at Princeton Theological Seminary. Um, and her, the way that she expresses this holding environment is, you know, it's a climate of, of just profoundly deep listening um, and a lot of discipline, perhaps on our side, to to not try to fill the gaps, to not, to not interrupt, to not try to predicate um, what this conversation is gonna look like, but to, to let the witness of survivors of abuse um, be aired, to give them, uh, to return to them that voice uh, so that they find us um, you know, uh, in, a, in, a, in a pattern of deep listening. Um, and so a holding environment, I think, is the church's vocation now. Um, Pope Francis, uh, and many others use the language of, of accompaniment. I think that captures the, the idea as well. But, but we, we have to find ways to, um, to constantly discipline ourselves back to this holding environment or this, this church that accompanies, this church that finds itself in solidarity with um, all those who've been impacted by abuse. Um, yeah, that's that's what I would say to begin with, for sure. Thank you. I that word "listen" is a very important word. If you take the letters of that word "listen," it rearranges it. It spells the word "silent," hmm. and so for us to be able to enter into that ministry, into that accompaniment, to be able to listen is to really be silent yeah. and to be completely present. Yeah. Um, if you're just tuning in now, we we're speaking with uh, Dr. John Shevlin. Uh, on the theological implications on the uh, and the effect, the impact of uh, child abuse in the church. Lauren, I, I just curious from your perspective, um, your younger church and your young church now, I mean, how has this, you know, in, in effect impacted you theologically and, and what helps you keep the faith? Thanks, Bernie. Uh, yeah, as John was talking, thanks for joining us again, John. We really appreciate it. I was thinking about, um, as you're talking about Pope Francis, his language of uh, the church needs to be to a field hospital for the broken. Mm -hmm. That's something that has kind of stuck with me. And I think as young church, we uh, this scandal has been around our entire lives. We've just grown up with a church that deals with this evil and this darkness. But at the same time, uh, People continue to become Catholic. People continue to have their children baptized. People continue to enjoy the sacraments and be a part of this church because we, I think we understand that it's not about the fallible humanity that makes up the church. It's rather the tradition and the theological foundations behind it. But uh, John, going off of that, I really appreciate your language of this holding environment that you brought in from uh, that Princeton theologian, but could you kind of expand on what you see as the role of the laity in being involved in this crisis? Because obviously uh, myself and Bernie and then you were, were lay people in the pews, but uh, we happen to do this work as a part of our professional lives. But what about those who are just sitting there any given Sunday? What are some kind of practical things that you see yeah. they could do to walk with victim survivors? That's great. That's great. I, I, uh, I would come alongside you as well in appreciating uh, Pope Francis's language of the church as a field hospital. Um, for me, um, and I'm maybe in the middle, uh, middle age, uh, but for me, that, that vision, that image of the church is um, right now is the only one that's authentic. That, that, is, that is sort of the reality on the ground. And um, it also stipulates the work to be done. Um, so th this is a church that has um, in its leadership in various ways, not, not uniformly, but in various ways, um, has contributed to uh, what you just named as evil. Um, 
tremendous suffering and suffering that remains. Um, just because abuse happened in the past doesn't mean that that suffering is localized in the past. It's, as we understand trauma, it's a suffering that remains. It remains in the body, it remains in the mind. Um, and so that has an authority over us. I think um, to do church now is to, um, is to understand that the suffering of, of innocent persons um, has to exercise a kind of authority over us. Um, and you ask about the laity um, and the, you know, uh, you and I, Lauren, are, are both lay um, Catholic adults. And as a theologian, I've, and just this morning, I was thinking again, how surprising it is that I, I myself can fall into patterns that we would say um, are, are clerical, um, patterns of clericalism. And what I mean by that is I have to constantly remind myself that um, it's, it's baptism that is the foundational sacrament. Um, so the baptismal dignity of, of all uh, Catholics, the baptismal dignity of the laity, um, this has us on equal footing um, with all members of the church, right? So we are all of us in the church, top to bottom, um, if that even works, that metaphor top to bottom even works anymore. But, you know, we are on equal footing. We are co-responsible for each other. We're co-responsible for the church, which means that we're required uh, to speak up. We're required to, um, to contribute, to lend our, our abilities, our time, um, our talents, wherever they might be. Um, and we are, in baptism, all of us required to continually convert our hearts. Um, and I think on this particular issue of, of child abuse, um, it's, it's the conversion of heart to work um, for child safety, uh, wherever we are in our lives, wherever we are in our civil society um, or within our church, uh, we are obliged to be constantly advocating for child safety uh, and for healing. Um, you know, I think, I think of the McCarrick report, um, I think those of us on this call have read it and, um, it's not easy or fun or great reading, but, uh, it's an important window into the past to see at least what some parents were conditioned to do and to think when their children were in harm's way. Um, this impulse to deny, this impulse to make excuse after excuse after extraordinary excuse. Um, no, it can't be that that just happened. No, it can't be that father just did this or it can't be that this boundary was, was violated. Um, I think those of us who are parents um, and frankly, those of us who are adults uh, in the church are, uh, we're required to, to listen differently than perhaps we have been trained or taught in our culture uh, in the past to listen to children specifically, uh, to take the voices of children as seriously as possible, to take, uh, to take their, their voices even when they're confused, uh, and perhaps especially when they're confused, to really lean into that and get into their world, to get into their emotion, into their, their minds, and to, and to listen in a deeper um, and much more skillful way. Um, I feel deeply for those parents that, um, whether it's through documentaries that we can watch or through the McCarrick Report itself, who just were culturally conditioned not to listen uh, to their own children even. Um, and I think, I think that's something that we don't want to necessarily blame. That's not a blaming issue. That's not a shaming moment, but it's an opportunity for us to learn to take that with us into our own parenting and to be energized by it in a new and fresh way. Hey John, uh, we have this phrase of promising to protect and a pledge to heal. Yeah. And, and pretty much the, the ministry of accompaniment, as, as you had mentioned earlier, we're dealing with a church that um, uh, is having to heal and, um, if you will, uh, journey through trauma, mm -hmm. um, heal through this, this type of trauma. From a, from a pastoral perspective, um, theological perspective, what type of um, notions or ideas or uh, 
what needs to take place for this healing for this healing to, to come about uh, for a church that's experienced this type of trauma um, and for folks who you know from time to time I run into that often ask me clergy and lay alike you know when is this going to end um, mm-hmm. any thoughts on that that's a that's a great question um, yeah I I think I think we have to be extraordinarily tentative and humble about this. Um, I know from my standpoint, I, I think of myself very much as a learner still on this. Um, and I am, uh, I'm overwhelmed, to be honest, by the kind of suffering that we're talking about, by the, um, I think damage is not the right word, but the kind of um, not just personal, but interpersonal wounding that, that we are needing to confront here and needing to address in healing and redemptive ways. It's overwhelming. And um, I don't have a, a silver bullet, but I do, I do think we have to first understand what it is that we are confronted by, um, what this suffering is that, that remains, um, and, and how to sort of understand it as having an authority over us, having an authority over the church and the church's ministry. Um, there's a, a theologian in the UK named Alistair McFadden who uh, wrote a book several years ago um, uh, doing a number of things, but he comments on, he's trying to probe what, what it is that happens to children um, when they are abused and manipulated um, and how the, the abuser is able to actually um, in very disturbing ways, co-opt the agency of that child, co-opt the, the willingness of that child to get the child to somehow accommodate, to keep the lie going, uh, to accommodate to the abuse. And what McFadden ends up suggesting is that this is lined up with what we understand sin to be, sin. Um, and I think we have to be careful not to suggest that you know, victims are quote unquote sinners. But what he's instead trying to, I think, shine a light on is that our understanding of sin as in part, uh, the loss of ability to will, the inability to will yourself um, into a right relationship with God, and therefore you are dependent upon the grace of God. Um, that, That the pattern of abuse itself inculcates that loss of ability to will into a victim, into a child. Um, and so this, this is an abuse of trust. It's an abuse of power. Um, it, uh, it entraps um, a, a child victim and it isolates uh, a child victim. And that kind of confusion, right? That kind of confusion that begins to set in on a victim survivor um, I personally am haunted by the, the possibility that this begins to be a kind of way for an abuser to actually create a climate of, uh, of, of a loss of agency, uh, of, a, of, a, of an inability to will oneself out of, of harm's way, right? So I, I think that's, first of all, what we have to try to come to understand uh, that's what needs to be healed. That's where our compassion, that's where our own, the church's own agency has to go. Uh, has to go to those um, places of deep confusion of, uh, of having one's agency been co-opted by, by evil, um, having been, um, you know, a, a kind of trauma betrayal and abuse of trust. Um, that, that's what needs to be healed. Um, for me, I, I, I didn't always think this way, but I actually think um, liturgical prayer, uh, communal prayer is at least a start. It's at least a start because I think when we gather together in community, when we gather together in mass and our bodies and our minds and our voices undergo liturgy. The liturgy takes us up into itself and we, we are prayed along in the liturgy. It becomes a moment for truth-telling. It becomes a moment in our liturgical prayers, in our 
prayers of the faithful, um, in our homilies, it becomes a moment to to speak the truth about about these evils, to speak the truth about them, and to come alongside anyone who has been uh, harmed by them. Um, so I, I think the liturgy, as traditional and potentially naive as you know some of our listeners might might think that that sounds, the liturgy done right, uh, done rightly. Uh, with a kind of sober awareness of what of what our church has experienced, with a sober awareness of what it is that survivors would stand to benefit from, what healing might begin to look like. Um, I think the liturgy is a place to at least begin uh, and to think about um, to think about how we might envision this church of solidarity, this church of accompaniment. Um, and to hold ourselves in the presence of God accountable to those to those visions, to those to those goals. Something that I just wanted to note quickly, John, with what you said, I think that goes back to Bernie's question about young church. We all definitely, I think, are more traditional than our parents' generation, uh, certainly our grandparents. And now we're uh, coming around and we've you know, kind of had this rekindling, this re-falling in love with the liturgy and what it means. And I think uh, hopefully most of our listeners have viewed uh, the 2017 healing mass that all the bishops had for victims, survivors, and we encourage dioceses to do that each April. But I think it's something very important that you note, John, that that is that's our even playing field. We can all come together as Catholics and have that as a beginning. Additionally, you talked about children and I appreciate that so much because I think that's so vital because um, sometimes we're met with a little bit of resistance as to why children have to take safe environment training uh, as uh, mandated by the charter. And it's so important, as you note, that this loss of agency, these issues, children are so, they're still developing and there's a lot for them to still learn, but to, to be able to walk them through training and say, these are behaviors that you should be uncomfortable with. These are signs. And we do the same thing with parents, but especially with the children who can have that autonomy and take back that agency and go to their parents and say, this made me uncomfortable. This wasn't the way it was supposed to be. I know there's something wrong. So I really appreciate you noting that. Thank you. Yeah, I would think safe environment training um, should be a should be a very positive thing that parents would welcome and that you know, with the perspective that, the, to be frank, this is the world we live in. Uh, and it's not merely about the church. It's about the world and our societies that we that we are members of. Um, uh, and even if we don't like the notion of our own children going through that training, to see ourselves and eventually our own children as, as different kinds of agents in society, as... Uh, as people who will grow up and become different kinds of parents who will simply be safer, who will have um, within their homes, within their network of family relationships, uh, different kinds of standards and different kinds of culture, right? Around, around our bodies, around um, boundaries and around, um, you know, respecting ourselves and respecting other, other people. I think uh, I, for one, as a parent, am, am very much welcoming that, and I would encourage other parents to welcome that as well. It's it's a positive. I'm uh, grateful you brought up the notion of community liturgy and being able to come together as community. Um, and I often see and have experienced churches that do this, uh, going through a process of conversion, uh, transformation as as well. Um, Interestingly, from a therapeutic standpoint, if you're looking at wanting to uh, move toward healing, you need to be able to name and address mm-hmm. uh, actually what it is that's caused this harm and what it is that's um, uh, brought about such ailments. And I have experienced local communities who've been able to get on their knees during the prayers of the faithful and to address in public the ail and uh, ailments and ills and the sins of abuse. And, and while we're at it, I mean, I'd be remiss to not, you know, mention the reality also of elder abuse and domestic violence yeah, and spousal sure. abuse and fiduciary abuse and, you know, yes. um, cyber bullying. I, you know, abuse is abuse is abuse. And so when you do have this brought out into the open at a liturgical communal celebration, 
the realization for families, individuals that may be out there that may be either experiencing this or seeing this or yeah. involved in this to realize they are, you're not alone. We, yeah. we, and, and, and that the church does indeed have resources and a way for help, um, you know, that, that we, we are, again, naming our, our sins of, of, you know, neglecting to really protect those who are vulnerable and those who are uh, in the most need of protection. And so that conversion we're taking, taking place. Um, but in many ways, again, in particular with the p- current pandemic or such, I know where I'm at currently at, the, uh, we just had lifted the ban. We can go back into church now for Christmas mass, which I'm grateful, but with limited numbers, originally that was mm-hmm. supposed to be outdoors or such, um, you know, and, and if we're to look at Eucharist and liturgy as being the source and summit of who we are and what we do and to be able to bring this together and, and at the, at the altar, you know, present all of this. Um, mm-hmm. it, it's really, it's really cause for such change to take place for the church. This type of transformation, conversion, um, John, where do you, where do you see the church evolving, growing uh, into and, and, and becoming? As you're speaking, it, it, you're, you're reminding me very much of the Second Vatican Council's document on the church in the modern world. <clears throat> the church in the modern world is, um, it's, it's a powerful, it's a very lengthy, um, but powerful document in the Second Vatican Council's uh, teachings that, that just as you say, with elder abuse, with uh, fiduciary abuse, um, with, with any other kinds of abuse, um, all of that is the church's business. All of that is the church's business. And I, I sometimes wish, to speak frankly, um, that more of our leadership was able to see the idea of liturgical prayers that, that center abuse or liturgies of lament or masses of healing, to see them for the upside that, that they truly do offer, rather than as a kind of, here we go again, uh, you know, we have to revisit this this pain, we have to revisit this wounding. Can we just get back to the church's regular business, quote unquote, regular business? Um, and for me, that's a frustration because I, I think the way you just described it, um, Deacon Bernie, I, I really see it as an opportunity to, to tell our truth, to repeatedly engage in our own necessary conversion, but also eventually, um, you know, it's, it might sound outlandish, but to start gearing the church up to be a better witness to the world, right? The way that the Second Vatican Council says the joys and the hopes, the griefs and the anxieties of the world are the joys and the hopes, the griefs and the anxieties of the church, right? There, there isn't a kind of barrier between us and the world. We are in the world as church. The church's suffering, the church's joy, all of that is our business. We need to enter into it. And I think if liturgies of lament, if masses of healing or other opportunities within the church to, to get our own affairs in order can help us get, get more involved with the world's affairs, um, th- that is doing the church's business. That's not an extra. That is doing the church's work. Um, just, to, just to reiterate, I think, what you were saying already. You're also highlighting something really important, John, is that traditionally, especially with child sexual abuse, this was um, obviously, it it seemed as though in 2002, when the Boston Globe scandal broke, that this was not only a North American problem, but particularly an American problem in the United States only, but it seems as though other countries are sort of waking up and having, unfortunately, their own scandals, but things are coming to light, and we're all seeing that we're united on an international scale by this uh, problem within our church, but it gives us an opportunity to fight it together or to combat what's going on together. What are some ways that you could speak to kind of that international cooperation just from what you've seen in your professional life. Yeah, that's great. Uh, well, I'd say a, a previous guest of yours, uh, Jesuit, German Jesuit priest Hans Solner, uh, who is the president for the Center of Child Protection in Rome, uh, which is affiliated with the Pontifical Gregorian University in Rome. Um, I'm pretty hopeful with their work, to be honest. They are um, 
as a as a major um, international seminary, um, I understand them to be trying to center the work of child protection in that international um, seminary, and, and so that when they bring in for different certificate programs and master's degrees and trainings, they bring in um, uh, people from all over the world, and then eventually return them back to their local home environments, um, trained with uh, with what are some more optimal, uh, you know, better practices, better um, policies and practices around child protection. Um, you know, a, a lot of the work that we have to do around just protection itself, never mind healing, uh, but just protection, a lot of that work is going to be undoing cultural norms that are deeply entrenched and in different kinds of ways throughout the world. Um, here in the US, we have our own cultural norms. Um, that seem to have us a little um, reluctant, a little reticent to, to really look hard and look deeply into abuse. I think we have um, some, some human reluctance to, uh, you know, to, to be shamed. And so where similar cultures or very different cultures around the world have, have those kinds of roadblocks that are set up, um, whether it's through um, body shaming or um, uh, the notion that children speaking up and uh, making their voices heard is is potentially um, not acceptable, not not polite or not appropriate. There's going to be a lot of need to um, begin to mitigate those cultural streams of influence. Um, and the church's responsibility will be to, I think, uh, interact with those cultural norms and um, you know, potentially without doing violence to cultures, nonetheless articulating the church's teaching around child protection and the expectations uh, that adults engage that work and take that work very seriously. Um, so the, the, the church will need to be in dialogue with the world. Uh, and I hope that the Center for Child Protection, um, I, I believe it is, um, is becoming one of the, uh, the church's best institutional drivers of that kind of change. Um, I think theologians, uh, secondly, uh, theologians around the world need to start doing this work a lot more um, deliberately, a lot more explicitly. And I, I say that as a theologian who is late, very late to actually um, taking this work seriously and, and understanding that my role, um, even my vocation as a theologian is to is to enter into the, the church's efforts here. Um, I was a graduate student when the Boston um, um, disclosures uh, came out in 2002. Um, I was a graduate student at Boston College. I lived in cooperative housing. We received the globe every morning. And all of us as theologians in training were very disheartened, very upset by what we saw. Uh, as far as I know, none of us changed our 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 study within the program. None of us pivoted. Um, I continue to do systematic theology in a way that I would now think is abstract. Um, and others continue to do ethics um, without really taking on um, the issue of abuse. And so it's, it's taking, there's, there is an incubation period, I think. It takes, unfortunately, some of us more time than it should. Um, but I think we need theologians um, not only in the US, but, but very much um, Catholic theologians around the world to, uh, to start delivering the, the power of their profession uh, to the church's ministry and the church's work. Um, I, I think that's, that's gonna be a helpful driver for, for institutional change. Um, I, I know that bishops can and often do listen to their theologians. Um, and so where we are both nationally, but internationally as well, lined up with each other in sync around this issue, developing creative patterns of address. Um, <clears throat> we stand, I think, collectively to, to better uh, influence the church's possibility for change and, uh, and improvement. Wise words indeed, if we're also to be keeping up with the signs of the times, uh, the church being able to look at that and being able to address that. So I'm grateful for your having said, John, that uh, all of these forms of abuse, that that is church's business. Um, yeah. As a result also, too, in looking at um, 
current uh, surveys or, or, or Pew studies, if, I, if I'm not mistaken, there was a study that indicated for every Catholic that enters the church, five or six leave. Mm. Um, and so from an evangelical perspective, from a catechetical yeah. perspective, from uh, Catholics that are already, um, some of us, myself included, uh, born, raised Catholic mm -hmm. school from kindergarten on or such, uh, what, what is our responsibility and role now to be able to evangelize, to share that good news, to be able to, um, you know, what, what, what does the church have to do now uh, in regard to addressing these signs of the times um, in light of the mission of the church? Um, yeah. Any thoughts? Yeah. Um, like you, I was also looking at some of those Pew, um, the Pew Forum data but uh, I just wanted to say back to a comment that Lauren offered a few minutes ago um, you know I think for me one of the most powerful liturgical ecclesial moments um, let me scratch that uh, the most powerful liturgical ecclesial moments in my life have been the baptism of my kiddo my daughter uh, and then just last uh, last winter um, her uh, uh, her first communion and her confirmation. Um, as trite as it can, can sound, I think if we can keep doing the church's liturgical work, sacramental work um, well, um, that's really important to keep to keep people um, within the church. It's I, I think I'm I'm somebody who's well aware of the dark side. I'm well aware of the shadows and what we're trying to. Um, do away with in our church. And if, if I can be um, funded by uh, participating in these, these sacraments with my daughter, um, if I can be renewed by them, I want to say other people can as well. Um, and so just as, as somebody who's, who's witnessed that recently, um, it's, it's extraordinarily powerful. It is. It's extraordinarily powerful. And um, I would just recommend it to others uh, to, to, to keep on uh, to keep within the church, um, and and to uh, according to their baptismal dignity, to make their voices heard as their voices need to be heard and should be heard, um, because they have uh, they have truth to speak as well. Some of that Pew uh, data is is concerning. Um, U.S. Catholics, uh, I see, are less likely than Protestants, um, U.S. Protestants, to express confidence in advice from clergy. Okay, so there's a there's a dip there. Less likely to express confidence in advice from clergy on things like marriage or relationships or parenting, um, and even less confidence uh, in advice from clergy on political issues. So. The, the Pew information that I was looking at kind of lumped that information with the, um, with the data that you know, many US Catholics do not claim a close relationship with their clergy. 40% um, of US Catholics say they are not close with their clergy. Um, and so my sense is if you're not close with your your, your pastor, if you don't have a relationship, at least knowing each other's names and having a little bit of, you know, relational foundation there, um, of course, you're not going to express a lot of confidence in their advice. Um, that's not a, necessarily a surprise. So my sense is there needs to be some renewal um, in parish life. Um, and I know some parishes are extremely large, and that can be harder to do. But there needs to be increased effort to actually be church together at church and to um, to wage these relationships, right? These personal relationships where um, where clergy and laity can begin to understand each other as friends and not simply as, you know, people that we look up to or people sadly that we might be looking down at. Um, but we need to understand each other as friends, as um, co-responsible for the church and um, somehow also co-responsible in our personal lives for each other as well. Um, I think on the abuse issue, 70% of U.S. Catholics think that that the um, the reports of abuse that have 
been happening since at least 2018, the, the new batch of reports of abuse, um, reflect ongoing problems that are still happening in the church. So 70% of Catholics think these new reports of abuse reflect ongoing problems still happening. Um, I think they are still happening in some, in some ways. Um, you know, when we look at something that feels like an historical artifact like the McCarrick Report, we can see that that's a climate that's very different from today. Um, the church in the U.S. today is um, operating at a different kind of level than what we see in the McCarrick Report. But there are still cases that are reported. There are still credible allegations. And there are still um, instances of cover-up. And so I think um, the 70 percenters out there of U.S. Catholics who think the problem is still ongoing, um, it is ongoing, but it's not going on in the same way, right? It's, it's much diminished. Um, one case of abuse, one case of cover-up is one case too many. There's no question there. But I think we can feel fractionally better um, that there has been some improvement. But to that 70%, I think we need to take very seriously, what would their homily expectations be? What would their needs be in church to process their own grief, um, their own anxieties, and their, their, their fear, potentially, that they might have? Um, can we see the actual ecclesial space as a place to process those very strong emotions, grief, anxiety, fear? You know, I know when I teach this material to my students, um, my university students, um, I teach it with a view to the constructive efforts that we can be making. But even then, you know, the, the darkness of this issue really impacts them. Some of them are really impacted. Um, I am a little haunted by the language I received in a reflection paper uh, that one, one particular student um, in two or three paragraphs said probably two or three times that, that she was heartbroken. Um, that's serious. Uh, that's serious stuff. And I, I think I was teaching this in a way that was shining a light on, on all of the resources we have to to constructively engage this issue. We're not just sitting in the darkness, we're trying to shine some light as well. So I think for those 70% of Catholics who think the abuse crisis is still ongoing, um, to, be, to be fair, I think our pastors need to take that really seriously. Um, I think our bishops need to take that really seriously and provide um, opportunity to process grief and to process that anxiety to be educated in the church's efforts and maybe to contribute to the church's efforts as well, where those efforts might need um, new voices, new contributions. Um, but I think for that 70%, you know, if a parish priest or, or even a local ordinary were to display little interest in kind of centering issues of abuse and healing in their public ministries, in their homilies, in their liturgies, you know, weeks and months after months and maybe years after years. Um, it's possible, it's likely that they've surrendered some credibility with that 70%. Um, and I think of Heather Bannis, Dr. Heather Bannis down in Los Angeles, who is the uh, Archdiocesan Victim Assistance Coordinator. And her uh, address that she gave in 2018 to the General Assembly of US Bishops, where she says, you know, our church is big enough our God is big enough to handle this, but we have to, we have to try. We have to sort of center this. We have to foreground this. Um, we have to, she says, for example, pray for victims at every mass. Um, why wouldn't we pray for victims at every mass? Or even to come down from that, most masses. Um, I think there are ways to do that. I think there are ways to do that creatively um, that are audience appropriate. Um, and can really carry us much further as a, as a church, as a community in our processing of this grief, um, processing our sense of betrayal, our, our anxieties, our griefs around, uh, around abuse. Um, and, and that might help with evangelization as well. You've been listening to John Shevlin and Lauren Sommer. My name is Deacon Bernie Nohadera. Uh, we've been talking about the theological implications and uh, consequences of child abuse, child sexual abuse in the Catholic Church currently. Um, 
John, Lauren, any any last words, thoughts of uh, um, perhaps hope of any 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 type of uh, ray of sunshine, silver lining, uh, yeah. God's plan for for His people, His church. Lauren. Thanks, John. Yeah, we'll let John have the last word. Uh, I think it's a, it's important for all of us as as you, you, Bernie, and John have both been highlighting that, yes, there is this darkness, there is this evil, but the church has come so far in, honestly, a very short amount of time thinking about the centuries and centuries that the Catholic Church has existed. In 20 years, we've been able to um, greatly decrease the occurrences of child sexual abuse and not that it's a game of numbers and as John noted um, any child harmed is a problem any adult harmed is a problem uh, but the fact that we can come together as a church and recognize that is so important and recognizing uh, that there is still hope within those sacraments as John was talking about uh, his daughter being baptized, for example, I was thinking about uh, having recently gone through pre-Cana classes just about two years ago, uh, thinking about if the crisis was ever even mentioned during classes, and it wasn't. And obviously, there are some married couples that choose to jump right into parenthood after they get married. And I was thinking about that preparation and said, oh, we're well, already there in parenthood, but you haven't even had this mention of uh, how your children might be trained or what might be going on within your parish. So uh, I think we've all given each other some good things to think about, uh, even as we can look at the annual report that the Secretariat puts out each year and see those numbers decreasing. Uh, we can have hope in that and know that we're all on the same playing field as Catholics, both on a domestic and international scale, and to be able to go to Mass and know that, and that it is about the tradition within the church, the theology, and not the fallible humanity that makes up the church in general. John? Thank you, Lauren. That's wonderful. Um, one of the things I was hoping we could talk about too today, um, very briefly here at the end, is um, you know, the, the possibility that scripture is this ongoing source of, of revelation. Um, that is a Catholic belief, um, that the biblical text itself is a live text, that the word of God interacts with us personally, intimately, in our places, in our times. Um, and I know in my, in my sense as a theologian, um, the, the writings of Paul have become increasingly, St. Paul, increasingly more decisive and actionable as I, I think as I age, but, but also on this, on this issue of abuse. Um, I think of passages in Galatians. I think of passages in 1 Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians 12, for example, um, which is the chapter from Paul that Pope Francis oriented his letter to Catholics around the world uh, in 2018. He oriented his letter around Paul's teaching that we are all members of one body. Um, and I think this is a, a really pregnant opportunity to look at this text um, as as a text that's, that delivers to us a sense that victims should have their voice. And where their voice is denied, we need to make every effort to actually uh, return that voice to them, to make our, our space cleansed of these roadblocks that might um, disincentivize them from speaking or disincentivize the rest of us from hearing. Um, so in, in 1 Corinthians 12, this language that Paul offers of um, the body does not consist of one member, but of many, right? The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor the ear to the foot, I have no need of you. Uh, but on the contrary, the members of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And those members of the body that we think less honorable, we clothe with greater honor. So I just, I think this is a, a, a text that Francis, Pope Francis was, was probably quite right to, uh, to lift up in, in this particular context. And we can still think more deeply uh, even uh, about, about how the biblical texts and maybe how this particular text um, can, be, uh, can be brought into this conversation uh, in ways that 
are redeeming a church that that hasn't fully you know hasn't fully turned the corner on this issue um, not all of our members of this body are are investing themselves the way we need them to um, not all members of the body are being heard uh, in the way that they they need to be heard um, not all members of the body are being healed the way that they deserve healing um, so i think this is this is what paul thought the church was we are members of each other we are members of each other and where that membership is lacking where our affections are underdeveloped we need we need those to be redeemed um, and so that that hopefully going forward can be the church's work John, I'm grateful for you bringing that up. I was I was going to mention with Galatians. I, I look forward to when in the fullness of time. Yes. Yes. What what our church indeed will look like. Um, for folks of you that are listening out there, if you know of someone that's been abused, or if you're being abused yourself, there is help. There is hope. You don't have to do this by yourself. You're not alone. Please kindly, if you if you're able to connect with a diocesan victim assistance coordinator or if you don't know who that is contact us here at the usccb uh, we may be reached on our website www.usccb.org child and youth protection secretary of child and youth protection um, reach out um, tell your story uh, we've been blessed multiple times over by those survivors those victims who've come forward and have been brave and cur courageous and have shared their story and have brought this to light. Um, the, the time has come, the door is open. We are now, the light, the light's coming in. There is no, there is no darkness that the light can't, uh, can't reach. You know, there is no light. Uh, the, the light is what's gonna bring this um, uh, back to where we should be, to this goodness and, and to, to this holiness. So again, I wanna thank, uh, Dr. John Shevlin uh, for joining um, Lauren and myself here with the Secretariat on this podcast. Um, we ask that you please uh, keep uh, survivor victims, their offenders uh, in your prayers. Um, we will definitely be praying for you. And in this season of Advent, as we, in a few days, in joyful anticipation to the birth of our Lord, uh, realize and know that you are loved unconditionally. Um, that, that God has beautiful and wonderful plans for you, um, and that as church, we'll get there together. So thank you, and until next time, God bless you all. Keep the faith, stay strong, and uh, thank you all again. Mm -hmm.